0: Welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. With last year's election of Donald Trump and his talk about bad hombres and Mexican rapists, it's hard to feel too optimistic about the prospects for comprehensive immigration reform. Trump's election seems to make the partisan divide on the issue more stark than ever. But Ali Nirani, our guest on this week's podcast, says a solution to the immigration debate isn't just a matter of the political dynamics in Washington. He says it has to start with conversations about culture and values in communities across the country. Ali has been having those conversations in his role as executive director of the National Immigration Forum, a Washington-based advocacy group. A lot of those conversations have been with conservative religious figures, law enforcement officials, and business leaders. Ali says we can find more common ground on the immigration debate than people think. He's written a book about what he's learned from those conversations and from some of the failures of earlier immigration reform efforts. His name may be familiar to some Massachusetts listeners because he spent a decade in Boston, where he was director of the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition. Ali Nirani, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So uh, you've spent a a good number of years in the the thick, the very uh, charged debate over immigration reform in America, and it's often portrayed as another issue with a sharp partisan divide, Uh, but you say that's not quite so, and you and your organization, the National Immigration Forum, have spent a good deal of time in uh, so-called red states and making common cause with, with more moderate and conservative leaders there. What, what is it that we've gotten wrong in the conventional narrative on immigration reform?
1: Well, I, I think that um, you know, for many, many years, those of us who care about immigration reform, we've always thought about this as a, an issue that's all about politics or it's all about policy. What I have learned about the immigration debate is that I think the majority of, the Ameri- of Americans see this as a question about culture and a question about values. Um, because, you know, when somebody moves into, uh, uh, you know, your community who is, you know, whether they're from Mexico, you know, Morocco or, or Singapore, um, you know, the first question for that person who's been there for generations is, okay, this person's moving in. You know, or is my culture going to change? Or are my values going to change? You know, is my neighborhood going to change? And I just think we as advocates have to do a much better job and be much more thoughtful about how we are engaging uh, the American public on this question of of immigrants and immigration.
0: And and talk a little about uh, sort of how you how you came to that understanding and. Um, in your book, uh, "There Goes the Neighborhood," which uh, I'd recommend to all our listeners, it was it was a really uh, interesting and and fun read to sort <laughs> of follow along in your travels and the conversations you had with people. Um, but but as part of that convers uh, 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 conversation, uh, you. You came to this realization and you write that in some ways, I don't know if you'd sort of call it an epiphany but but it sort of crystallized back in uh, in in two thousand ten when there was a, a, a big debate going on in Washington over immigration reform and at the same time Congress was was considering uh, uh, scrapping the so-called don't ask don't tell policy regarding uh, gay service members in the military. so, Help, help, understand, help us understand a little how you, how you sort of came to this, this view of the immigration debate as one that really needs to be viewed as, one, as an issue about culture more than politics or policy per se.
1: Well, you know, it actually goes back even before that moment in 2010, which I'll talk about. But uh, it goes back to a conversation you and I had in 2007 when you were writing for The Globe. And I remember, I, I think I, I cited this in the, in the book where uh, Bob Putnam had just come out with some new research where, to paraphrase, he found that, you know, diversity was a challenge for the majority of Americans. And, you know, it, he challenged our assumption that, uh, uh, you know, diversity and, and was a good thing and welcomed uh, by, by people. And I remember telling you, and I think you, you quoted me in the, that Globe article, um, uh, and I said something like, well, you know, we can either dismiss these findings or we can figure out what's underneath them and really how do we engage people. Um, so that conversation and that study—I do, do
0: remember the conversation now—and uh, <laughs> and, and his uh, and his report, which I think you know was was sort of jarring to people. And I, I think, I think the headline they put on it was the downside of diversity, which you know made it particularly pro- provocative, since we're always talking about you know celebrating diversity and diversity is the strength of communities. And he found that uh, you know while it could be in the long run there's some short-term challenges when uh, when when communities change in their makeup exactly so I mean I you know that report and our conversation kind of got buried
1: into the, the nooks and crannies of my largely empty brain um, and then in 2010 it really started to crystallize for me where in December 2000, 2010 uh, two things happened in the United States Senate one was, uh, and this was on December eighteenth, two thousand and ten, specifically. In the morning, uh, the Dream Act was defeated, and in the afternoon, Don't Ask, Don't Tell was successfully repealed. And uh, the Dream Act would have done what? The Dream Act is legislation that would have granted legal status for young undocumented immigrant immigrants um, who, after whether they're going um, uh, to college, enlisting in the armed services, or doing community service, if they once they had done that for a number of years. Uh, they were able, they would have been able to um, apply for legal status, and mm-hmm. looking back from that moment of December eighteenth, two thousand ten, I realized that you know we lost those of us who who were fighting for the Dream Act, we lost for a very specific reason that you know don't ask don't tell was successfully repealed, because the LGBT movement they made a case to the American public around the repeal of don't ask don't tell based on what it means to serve your nation openly or freely. What it means to be a part of a loving relationship. Uh, they never talked about politics. They never talked about policy. They really talked about you know, what are the, the, the personal and the, the, the cultural questions behind, uh, uh, be, again, being able to serve your nation openly and freely. Those of us in the immigrant rights movement over the course of 2010, you know, that was a big midterm election year. We, we doubled down on the politics. You know, we registered voters in you know in Nevada. We registered voters in Colorado. We made sure that people understood where the candidates were on the issues. We won the politics, but we lost the cultural battle, and therefore we lost the um, the the legislation that day. So, you know, what I realized is that as an organization, we needed to do a much better job of engaging the American public in a cultural conversation as opposed to a political debate.
0: And. And and you write uh, in in the book about a lot of those conversations that that unfolded in the years after that. And um, I mean, just talk a little bit about about how how that unfolded and um, and the ways in which you know you were surprised. Uh, you know, there's just great uh, vignettes in the book about your meetings with. Uh, uh, leader, Mormon leaders in Utah, uh, people, uh, part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and and folks that you you know you write quite quite frankly were not uh, not the kind of company that you were accustomed to keeping as kind of a progressive uh, advocate who's been active in immigration issues for many years.
1: Right, and, and uh, I mean you know I was born and raised in California, I went to UC Berkeley, you know, spent ten years in Boston. Um, so I came into this this new moment of okay, how do I how do I as an individual and the leader of an organization get out of my comfort zone? So there are a couple of uh, things that happened that I think you know we really drew from. One was in the summer of two thousand ten, um, you know, uh, the, in the state of Utah, there's a really significant flashpoint. Now to take a little more uh, one more step back is that in April two thousand ten. In Arizona, SB 1070 was passed. This was the show-me-your-papers law, which would have uh, um, authorized local police officers to ask for immigration status. Um, Utah was on the, the next on their list in terms of you know trying to pass this legislation. A group of conservative leaders from the Catholic Church, uh, law enforcement, think tanks, the business community, other organizations came together and started thinking about, okay, how do we make sure that SB 1070 never makes it to Utah? And there was this particular moment in the summer of 2010 where it became very clear of kind of what is possible, where um, four or five state workers took it upon themselves to release a list of you know, thousands of names to uh, law enforcement accused, alleging that these individuals were undocumented immigrants. In reality, these were just individuals with Hispanic surnames. Um, but what happened was that the Utah Republican Attorney General the uh catholic church the mormon mormon leadership business leadership uh conservative thought leadership all said that this is wrong and over the remainder of the year they banded together to pull together something called the utah compact which was five very conservative sounding principles about the free market the importance of family values uh uh, you know importance of national security um uh, and that Compact became a vehicle through which conservatives could have a constructive conversation about the need for immigration reform. So we looked at that and we said, okay, there's a, if, there's, if Utah can do it, the most conservative state in the country, how do we replicate this type of these types of relationships in different parts of the nation? And over the course of the next couple of years, you know, we spent an incredible amount of time sitting down with conservative faith leaders, law enforcement leaders, and business leaders to understand how they and their constituencies or their communities uh, engage in this question. And over time, we've built out this coalition that's come to be known as Bibles, Badges, and Business for Immigration Reform. And, you know, the basic idea is that if you hold a Bible, you wear a badge, or you own a business, you want a common-sense solution to the immigration system. And, and,
0: and, and, and as you made your way through this, uh, these conversations and the efforts in these states, um, it just reinforced, I guess, your view that, um, that even when it comes to business, I don't know, business leaders, was that still sort of a, a a question of culture and values or, you know, some people would say, uh, the business community has been a more moderate, moderating uh, voice you know, in in the immigration debate, in some ways, you know, out of self interest, because they they understand uh, the role that immigration has played in the economy. Um, how, how did how did the business community fit into this? You know, the sort of way you're 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 looking at how the debate how the debate is shaped.
1: So you know, up
0: to this point,
1: up to that point, I would say that we would always go to the business community and and ask them to talk about you know, kind of the the bottom line implications of. Of immigrants and immigration and you know what was the economic benefit of the immigrant workforce and that that's important but like you said that it can has runs the risk of coming across as self-interested and you know if you're a person who is just struggling with this issue for a variety of reasons and you hear you know the Chamber of Commerce talk about the need for immigrant workers you know your immediate response is well I can do that job or you know the guy that I know down the street can do that job um, and so what we found is that through this coalition of faith, law enforcement, business leaders, uh, something happens to the way that business leaders talk about the issue. And the best part about this work is, um, you know, before we do an event, there's, you know, we're, we're sitting in the green room and you have got the pastor, the police chief and the business owner. The pastor is sitting there thinking, OK, they look at the business owner, they, you know, they're saying, OK, I don't want to talk about visa reform or, you know, the number of H-1B visas you need. Right. Right. The business owner is looking at the pastor and saying, well, I don't want to get you know, caught up in some sort of a social conservative cause here. And the police chief is looking at both of them saying, you know, what am I even doing in this room? <laughs> um, but what happens when they come out and start talking to the public is that, you know, the business owner realizes that, you know, they're not talking about the immigrant workforce as a cog in the wheel because they're sitting next to a pastor or their pastor and their police chief. They're, they're talking about an immigrant workforce as part of their family and part of their community. Um, so it adds a, a moral and a cultural element to the conversation from a business perspective. And what it means is for that, that, you know, that American who's kind of struggling with this question, when they hear that business owner talk about the immigrant worker as kind of a fellow human being, it takes a little bit of, of, um, anxiety out of the out of the formula and you start to open the door to a, a very different conversation.
0: Mhm. And and you write in the book that uh you know starting uh you know 2008 2009 you know around the time of the the Tea Party the Tea Party was at its peak that that you know that was also when a lot of the you know the the anti-immigrant energy really started to boil up and that and that there was just this sort of uh fear people had of of the changes happening in the country. But I guess I wonder isn't that Hasn't that always been the case? I mean, what is there something different about the moment we're in now? Because there's been a lot written about how, um, you know, frankly, for all the, uh, uh, you know, the imagery of the of, of you know the, the Statue of Liberty, uh, that 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 we've always been there's always been resistance to newcomers in whether they were, you know, Southern Europeans, Jewish immigrants, uh, or others, you know, in the in the, uh, you know, 19th or 20th century and now and now, folks from other parts of the world today? I mean, it's certainly the case. I, I mean,
1: this, you know, America's relationship with immigration has been very, you know, it, let's just say complicated. You know, Doris Meisner who ran uh, Immigration and Naturalization Services uh, for President Clinton told me uh, in an interview for the book, uh, she said to paraphrase, Uh, Americans, uh, cherish immigration in hindsight, you know, not so much in the present tense, um, which I just think that's always been the case. Um, on the other hand, I think what is different now is that there is a confluence of factors that, you know, that lead Americans to think that, you know, they've lost control of their lives. And ultimately that means that their child may not do better than them. Um, so you look at the stresses that globalization puts on local economies that, you know, uh, uh, you know, frankly, an education system that's not keeping up with the needs of our manufacturing sector or, you know, our, our, our economy writ large, um,
0: mm-hmm. you know, changing demographics. Um, I think all those so think factors. I think the fact that it's sort of happening during this period of, uh, you know, this huge, uh, attention on, on stagnant income growth, income inequality, sure. the kind of fraying of the middle class, um, that, that sort of is an overlay on the whole debate today that, that, that has changed a lot.
1: And it's absolutely, and therefore, it's easiest to blame the other. And right now, in this moment in time, the other is the immigrant. And you know, that you know, the immigrant is seen as an economic threat, a national security threat, A cultural threat, um, you know, to many people. And, you know, frankly, you know, President Trump has has capitalized on that that anxiety.
0: Right, right. I guess one other thing I was struck by in the book is that, um, you know, is that while things were playing out in the political arena, you write that, uh, you know, President Obama and the Obama administration was You know, at at many at many points, kind of a disappointment in terms of uh, how they handled the immigration issue. Can you talk a little about that? Sure. So, you know, in two thousand nine and ten, and even after that,
1: I I think that the you know the administration, um, you know, their theory was that if they increase enforcement, if they continue to uh, uh, target undocumented immigrants and and you know increase their deportation numbers, Republicans will think, okay. Well, you know, we're good. You know, you're enforcing the law. We'll, we'll, we'll trust you now. Um, and I, I, think that um, strategically, that was a miscalculation because at that moment in time in our history, perhaps this moment you know, it continues now. There's very little appetite for a bipartisan uh, approach to these, these, these challenges. And I think what the administration could have done better, and you know, they did to a large degree once we got into 2013 and 14. Is really start to reach across the political aisle and not necessarily through Congress. But you know, when the president sat down with uh, evangelical leadership, when he sat down with law enforcement leadership, when he sat down with business leadership, he was reaching across the political spectrum without necessarily getting stuck in the political bubble that's Washington D.C. And I just think that you know, if we're gonna, if there's any chance of making change on this or any other issue, we need politicians who are kind of. It's a strange thing to say, but. Are willing to kind of get out of the political bubble and act in an apolitical way,
0: right? And, and and the 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 sort of more conservative leaders that you write about, and then in the political realm, some of the you know elected Republican officials, whether it was the uh, Indiana Republican Attorney General or other folks you write about. Um, I mean, did they did they uh, was it risky for them to stake out the sort of ground that they did in in reaching across and um, and framing the immigration issue uh, as, as you've put it in more sort of cultural terms than purely political or policy terms? Uh, absolutely, and I, I mean I, I think that the, the you know those of us on quote the left we
1: have a tendency to kind of assume that you know, conservatives should be doing the right thing. And, uh, you know, they don't have a self-interest in their own agenda, much less their own, you know, ability to, to make change. But, you know, Greg Zeller, uh, was the, uh, uh attorney general, of the state of Indiana, a Republican, you know, I think grew up, uh, kind of working for Dan Quayle and, uh, uh, uh Dick Lugar. Um, and, you know, he embodied Indiana he was born and raised in the state, um, quiet spoken, really thoughtful arch or devout Catholic Um, and he told me the story of um, when then Governor Pence signed a letter saying that he didn't want Syrian refugees in the state that um, Zeller as Attorney General his job was to defend the state's decision but as a member of the Board of Directors of Catholic Charities it was his moral responsibility to welcome refugees and he talked to me about that that uh, you know the difference in roles there Um, but also at that point you know, Greg was running for Congress. He was um, caught in a pretty heated uh, primary battle with a, a Tea Party Republican who he eventually lost to because, in large part, because Greg was seen as, you know, a, a pragmatic, thoughtful, but still conservative Republican, um, but not conservative enough for this moment in time.
0: Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we continue to see some of those kind of things play out in the political arena where... Uh, you know, it, it, it appears to be risky for Republicans uh, to deviate from sort of that hard line because of the threat of uh, primary challengers. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, right now, you know, we're seeing that, uh, you know, potentially playing out in Arizona with Senator Flake mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, John McCain, who was, you know, uh, at one time one of the early leaders on the Republican side. Uh, of uh, trying to sort of push immigration reform, you know, uh, you write about him sort of moving more to the right, and 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 he himself faced uh, you know primary challenge recently.
1: And which I think is why it's so important that you know we are kind of getting, you know, whether it's above or below the political battles, um, and creating the strategies and the conversations and the the opportunities for folks to to. To sit down across the political spectrum, and the way that I put it in the book is that, you know, I feel like organizationally our motto is to meet people where they are, but not to leave them there, uh, and that mm-hmm. means that you know again whether it's immigration or any of a number of other issues, we've got to figure out what are the points of agreement, uh, what you know between conservatives and and liberals, libertarians, and you know others on the spectrum, because uh, you know we just right now the political structures as they're set up they're driven by really you know small but powerful uh, factions and i think over time we can break through that if we continue to to frankly create a debate whether it's on the left or the right of you know a more pragmatic way to go
0: forward mhm and 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 another thing that maybe is is sort of played out a little under the radar i mean you write about so would you say you know in you know at least at the state level do you feel like the conversations and this um you know, effort that you were part of the, uh, you know, business badges and business, uh, coalition, uh, it really did notch some victories that, that are, you know, a a little bit of a roadmap.
1: I mean, I think so. I mean, you know, I talked about uh, the work in Utah where you had, uh, faith law enforcement business leaders come together for, to stop SB 1070 and try Mm -hmm. to come up with some innovative solutions in Nebraska. Um, you know, Republicans, you know, some of the folks that we've been working with there for a long time led an efforts to uh, pass state legislation so uh, undocumented immigrant youth who were L, who were who got legal status through Deferred Action Program, the DACA program, uh, they could get driver's licenses in Nebraska. Um, so there are a number of examples where I think at the you know the city or the state level where you know Republicans or conservatives are, you know, frankly. Having an internal debate and coming out of that with a in a more constructive fashion. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, talk a little about how you sort of came to view uh, the role of religion and religious leaders, maybe a little differently. You write uh, at one point in the book, you d- you describe yourself as a a liberal Muslim-ish guy from California, right. and I think the-ish part is that as you write, you're you know you're uh, your family is Muslim, but you're not particularly religious or observant, yet um, you found yourself um, in a lot of conversation and uh, joining forces with, with folks who were really driven by religious belief and finding that that, in some ways, is one of the, I think, main anchors when you talk about needing to sort of move the conversation more toward one about culture than politics. So, I mean, a lot of that culture is really anchored in uh, in in religious communities, primarily, you know, Christ, different Christian faith groups in the country. Although again, interestingly, at the very beginning the, of the book, you talk about then Senator Joe Lieberman and his strong Jewish faith uh, really uh, in, informing, uh, you know, some of his actions as well. I-
1: you know, so growing up in Northern California, you know, again, living in Boston, and it's not all about geography. But you know, I like I like you, you mentioned. You know, I grew okay. up. In
0: you're, a... you're a coastal elite, right? That's what I you're know exactly. saying. Exactly.
1: I am part. I'm totally part of the problem. I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. <laughs> right. Um, but you. I mean, I, I grew up in a family that, like you said, it we didn't practice religion. Uh, I, you know, for a long time, I, I would look at faith leaders, you know, skeptically. Um, and really kind of question what the motives were, but I just realized that, you know, if we're going to do this work, um, we have to understand where, you know, where's the majority of the country on these questions and, you know, engaging people through their faith, um, you know, gives a window into somebody's values as opposed to engaging somebody in their politics, which, you know, you get a window window into somebody's ideology. And those are, I think, very different, very different things.
0: Right, um, and you've talked yeah. you talked about I think at one point a visit you went on with some leaders to a I guess a, a, maybe an immigration detention center on the on the border uh, the Mexican border in Brownsville, and how the folks you were with uh, came away from it, and it and again they were uh, it wasn't a big high minded policy discussion that hit them it was really being confronted with seeing these kids uh, you know who had fled. Uh, uh, different dangers in Central America and, and having to sort of, uh, reckon with that in, in the context, you know, often of their own faith, of, uh, you know, some understanding of what their faith teaches them about, uh, you know, how to deal with, with, with those in need or those, uh, you know, facing some adversity.
1: And, and I guess what I, what's, what I realized is that, and particularly within the evangelical community, is that there is a tension between, you know, the rule of law of the United States and the the and the Bible. Um, and you know, laws must be followed. Yes, we live in a nation of laws, but those laws also must be just. And you know, living in that tension uh, is a real challenge for people uh, who are you know who go to church every Sunday. For me to enter into those conversations and, and develop a relationship, I have to respect that tension. You know, I have to understand that. You mm-hmm. know, most Americans, you know, they live somewhere between, you know, believing we are a nation of laws and believing we are an inclusive and welcoming nation. If I don't mm-hmm. respect how people are grappling with that tension,
0: um, I don't think we're going to solve many problems. Mm-hmm. And so, let's talk a little bit about. Um, you know, what in some ways is maybe now the elephant in the room on the whole immigration issue, and that was, you know, the election of Donald Trump, um, who, you know, who ran on this, uh, you know, very harsh anti-immigrant platform, one that, you know, many people would say really sort of, you know, demagogued the issue, villainized immigrants as the source of uh, so much of of the problem. I think he successfully, effectively really did as we were talking earlier, join the issue of immigration with the uh, insecurity that Americans are feeling economically about their their place and their standing in in the middle class or 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 you know wherever they wherever they uh, position themselves. So um, you know it, it cert- certainly feels like, and when it comes to. Pushing for you know some common understanding on immigration or getting us to some resolution of the of the big looming issue about the you know eleven or twelve million undocumented immigrants here that the election seems like uh, you know a big step backwards. So
1: when I was writing the book last summer and over the course of the and it was right at the height of, of the presidential campaign. Um, there was a particular uh, survey that still sticks in my mind. And it was an analysis of the, the Gallup survey. Um, and it was, their finding was that you know, your Trump voter lived in a culturally isolated community and felt that their child would not do better than them. So it was this, you know so what Trump was able to tap into is this kind of anxiety about a changing America demographically, but that at the end of the day, all that people want is to make sure that their kids are gonna do better than them. And they felt that Donald Trump would fix that problem. Um, and that's why, I mean, for us at this moment, and we've been doing this for a number of years, it's like everything that we want to advocate for in the realm of immigration policy has to be in the interest of the American worker and their family. Um, and you know, just yesterday, you know, a couple days ago, I was uh, speaking to um, a number of uh, Korean leaders from across the country. And the majority of them were, were mothers themselves and they were advocating for their ch- undocumented uh, children. Uh, and I, and I, they were standing in front of the White House just you know, talking to people as they would come and you know, snap a picture of the White House. And you know, what I realized is that their interest as mothers from Korea advocating for their kids was to make sure that their kids are gonna do better than them. Just like that voter in Iowa voter for Donald Trump. So, you know, how do we take that common interest and and kind of move things forward? And, but the reality is Trump tapped into that and, you know, we are where we are.
0: And, and, uh, I mean, just quickly, maybe give us a little take on, on some of his moves. Uh, I mean, he's, he's pushing or, or backing a big change in legal immigration that would, uh, you know, reduce the number of people admitted and also change pretty dramatically. The, uh, you know, the, the criteria for, for entering the country, which had been strongly based on, uh, you know, family ties and relationships and making it much more sort of a skill based, uh, you know, rules. Yeah.
1: So I, I think that, you know, President Trump from the day he took office has been more or less taking the country down a path of systematically dismantling our nation's immigration system. Um, and then, you know, you can go back to the travel ban, all the enforcement executive orders that he signed on his early days. But earlier this summer, uh, he endorsed legislation introduced by Senators Cotton and Purdue called the RAISE Act, uh, Reforming American Immigration, uh, something, something. You know, there's, there's some basement room in, the, in Congress that comes up with these great acronyms. <laughs> um, but in any case, the RAISE Act uh, would slash legal immigration by 50% and completely uh, um, eviscerate the idea of family-based immigration. Our problem with that is, you know, so number one, we agree that we need reforms to our legal immigration. On the other hand, according to the American Action Network, at the by the time we get to 2020, our economy is gonna be facing a private sector worker shortage of seven and a half million. Uh, if we're- Not solely
0: s- at the high skills level. Across the labor, uh, across the spectrum. Right. Um, some people have said this sort of skill based uh, uh, policy, you know, mimics in some, you know, to some extent, the way Canada deals with immigration in other countries. People have tried to say it's not it's not such a, uh, you know, you know, a horrifying, uh, you know, change.
1: Yeah. So when people compare, you know, the the point system of Canada or Australia to the U.S., I think we're comparing apples and oranges. Our economy is exponentially larger than those than Canada's, and much more diverse. Um, and you know, I was in Idaho, you know, three four weeks ago, and you know, those those dairy farmers they def, they depend on some pretty highly skilled workers to be milking those cows. But you know, the federal government doesn't see a dairy worker as quote a skilled a skilled worker. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I think that you know you you start peeling back the layer of the onion. Uh, uh and pretty quickly you realize that you know we need the skilled engineer as much as we need the skilled farm worker and you know this raise act does nothing to actually solve any problems mm-hmm.
0: And what about you know even even more recently just on Friday uh, the president's pardon of uh, former Arizona sheriff Joe Arpaio um, what did uh, what did that say to you? <laughs> Not nothing uh, good. I'm presuming. Nothing good, Yeah, nothing
1: good. I'm going to try to keep this family friendly, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, Joe Arpaio was,
0: it sends this broad signal about the direction that, uh, that the, the, the administration, the federal government, at least on the executive side is taking and and how it's viewing this whole immigration issue.
1: Both Trump and Arpaio kind of presented themselves to the present themselves to the public as kind of law and order, in, you know, politicians. And the fact is that Joe Arpaio saw himself above the law and was convicted of, of contempt of court, criminal contempt of court. Donald Trump, you know, did build a case of why Joe Arpaio should be pardoned. Um, in essence, endorsed Arpaio's practices of profiling immigrants, of holding them in inhumane conditions, you know, in the language of his, uh, you know, when he said, you know, I'm, I support, I, I'm a big supporter of your work here, an American patriot. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the message that, that Trump, President Trump sent to this uh, through this pardon is that you know immigrants are a threat to the society and we need more law enforcement like a, like Joe Arpaio, which mm-hmm. at the end of the day makes us all all of us a whole lot less safe. Right,
0: and you're still I, I guess in spite of this all you still you do you still feel some grounds for optimism about about where we can go on all this even in the. Uh, in the Trump era, you know, I'm optimistic about this because, uh,
1: you know, I think that the majority of Americans are good people. And I said this earlier that I think the folks are living between this the spectrum of being a nation of laws and being a welcoming nation. And how do we help people move that move across that spectrum so that they see immigrants and immigration as a value to them in their lives? Um, and, you know, we just talked to too many you know, pastors, police chiefs, business owners a number of whom voted for Donald Trump, who are saying, you know what, we need a constructive approach on this issue. So, you know, I, I, I remain optimistic that we will reform the immigration system. Um, you know, we just have a little bit more work to do than we probably expected a year or two ago.
0: Great. Well, Ali, I want to thank you for a great conversation and uh, um, recommend to folks listening uh, uh pick up uh, Ali's book. It's a great read. There Goes the Neighborhood, How Communities Overcome Prejudice and Meet the Challenge of American Immigration. Um, so thanks again. It was really great to talk.
1: Hey, thank you so much, Michael. I, I really, really appreciate this one. It's great to talk to you.
0: And you have been listening to another installment of the CODcast from Commonwealth Magazine. You can subscribe to the podcast via SoundCloud or iTunes. Uh, I'm Michael Jonas. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.